This is a Research in Practice podcast, supporting evidence-informed practice with children and families, young people and adults. In this podcast, Research in Practice Director Des Holmes and Wayne Reid, Basel England's Professional Officer, Social Worker and Anti-Racism Visionary, discuss the key issues highlighted by Wayne in a presentation on promoting anti-racism in social work. Linked to the presentation, other resources that are mentioned in this episode and related research and practice resources are all available in the episode show notes. Thank you so much, Wayne. That was really, really rich. I had to cut my camera at one point because I realised that I was sort of nodding along and potentially distracting <laughs> the viewer. Really, really excellent stuff. And I'm, I'm grateful in particular because I know that you've had to synthesise a huge amount of work and effort and information um, into this really succinct presentation. So much stuff that resonated there. And, and uh, as we were planning this session, as you know, we've got these various things we want to talk about from an organisational perspective. But mm-hmm. really what I was taking from your talk was much more personal than that. You know, I was positioning myself, uh, recognising that I am I'm still working on the interface around awareness and allyship. And, mm-hmm. and I'm sure putting all sorts of feet wrong. And I found that that um, taking your point that actually growth is is infinite. And I could identify occasions where I was, you know, working really hard on learning, but hadn't quite made the growth bit. And some areas where I felt like, well, I'm in the growth zone, you know. Yeah. yeah and what, what I really took from it was... Um, something that really resonated with me as you were talking about the change that's needed, particularly uh, for people like myself where I'm white, um, is is the vulnerability that comes with it. If you're trying to be better, which, you know, is probably the the only um, thing I can say about myself, just trying to be better, certainly not nailed it yet, is how vulnerable you are within that. it's much less vulnerable to not give a damn and not worry about trying to be oh, better, yeah, for sure. of course. Yeah. Mm. And and kind of recognising um, my own fragility and vulnerability yeah, as a white leader of a majority white organisation. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, some of your, your comments there and the challenge of it. I love the point about change what you do and then you'll change what you think. Yes. We have lots of conversations at Research and Practice about um, behavior first or or culture and actually behavior drives culture as well as vice versa mm-hmm. i think um some of the some of the stories initially when you were describing how social workers had told you for example that they'd not had ppe made i found that if i say shocking that suggests i didn't think it was possible and of course we know it is possible yeah but shocking that in a profession which is more than most professions about values and ethics um, it's shocking that we're still here, I guess. And I, and I say that I'm not a social worker by trade, so I, you know, I, I defer to those who are. Um, but as as a, a friend of social work, well, we should set up FOSWA at some point. Um, but <laughs> as a friend and hopefully an ally of social work, um, it's upsetting to know that even within social work, one of the, I say, one of the more ethically minded professions we've still got so far to go. Really appreciated um, some of your points there where you were, we were engaging in intersectionality as well. The woman of colour infographic really resonated. We we worked with some colleagues, um, Rashida Baig and her colleague uh, at uh, Croydon and also with Namal Jude, and they, they produced these three very, very powerful films for us about their experience of uh, microaggressions and indeed overt racism within the workplace and the point about intersectionality I think is a really important one um, you know it is it is not only being a person who experienced racism but also being a person who experiences sexism or who indeed can experience homophobia and I think that 
at its heart starts to tackle one of the um one of the resistant arguments we sometimes come across uh what aboutery basically oh yeah oh we yeah. want to focus on racing but what about yeah. this it's like yeah what about this they're all connected pal you don't have mm. to choose that's right you know it's not yeah. a buffet there's more room <laughs> on your plate than you think you can care about multiple things one of the things we're learning as an organization is how a desire to get things right and not do things wrong will be part of the problem my goodness we get tongue-tied i was smiling to myself um as you were using the term people of color because having agonized quite a lot internally about that we've decided we don't we don't say people of color because color's not your defining characteristic and oh i see yes and, oh yeah the knots i got myself in about whether or not we should be capitalizing white the way we capitalize black okay <laughs> i mean you can really oh. go down a rabbit hole with this you stuff. can oh yeah yeah yeah, and, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about that. I mean, there was a slide actually in the presentation, which I skipped uh, just for brevity, um, which talked about the BAME conundrum. That's the name of the, the slide. Um, and I did, like I said, I left it out just for brevity. But my thinking about that is that, you know, it's obviously a, a, an important space and conversation to be had about language. But equally, I think we can end up going down a rabbit hole, like you're saying, it prevents us from the actual doing part, which after all, is really important if not more important um so yeah i think it's people just recognizing that really that they don't get too tongue-tied you know they have the, the thoughts and the consideration but there's always a kind of you know um a, with a view to taking some action and then refining that action you know and i think recognizing that in trying to be better and do better you have to forgive yourself enough that you can crack on with the important work of being better not try and create this absolutely perfect polished position that could never be critiqued from any angle yeah because right. and that that requires leaning into your fragility and mm -hmm. letting yourself be vulnerable and yeah. and um and kind of not panicking actually yeah <laughs> that makes it's, sense um, yeah it's it's sitting with that discomfort isn't it that's what it is and uh i think that can only be achieved when you stay true to yourself and others you know and that involves making mistakes it involves that vulnerability you know, it involves maybe sometimes being caught out. You know, you might say the wrong thing. You might say person of colour to a person of colour and they might say, hey, hang on, don't call me that, call me BAME. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's being confident enough within yourself to think, well, my intention's there. I've got the right intentions, you know. And, um, and when it comes down to it, you know, recognising that, you know, good intentions are all right, but don't count for much if the impact is negative. There's mm -hmm. something about, you know, when you're in a privileged position and, I am privileged because I tend the grief I get is never about my skin color. Mm. I wouldn't want you to think I don't get grief. You know I do. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> but from it's an not about point skin of view, color. like you say. Yeah. And so then you have to ask yourself, you know, what's the worst that can happen? I might get called out, criticized, or worse still, offend someone. Yeah. Well, I will apologize. Mm. I will make it better, as yeah. opposed to I will say and do nothing so that I can never be criticized. That well, that to me feels like a far worse outcome. I think so. I agree. And I also think that, you know, that's one response, sort of not apologising. I think, you know, thinking of the anti-black uh, racism infographic that I put up, sometimes that fragility can look like sort of defensiveness. It can look like, um, you know, kind of, I don't know, uh, a white manager going particularly hard on a black member of staff because they're made to feel guilty and they don't want to sit with that guilt. And it's easier for them to transfer that guilt in another way by treating that person in a way where, you know, they're kind of feeling, well, you know, I don't really have to get too wrapped up and involved in their stuff. 
you know it it can manifest itself I suppose in all sorts of different ways but um I think the key a key idea that I won't be able to come away with I suppose are those different types of white identity that exist and people mapping or charting where they think they are on that and like you say just trying to do better yeah yeah and and taking a risk with that sometimes yeah they're really really helpful and so much to say really rich stuff in there I am I was quite struck as well, as you can appreciate, I'm sure uh, Baz was positions not a uh, million miles away from this. We do a lot of work to help the sector. So we produce, you know, research and practice isn't a social work organisation, although we work with lots of social workers and, you know, in producing materials and workshops and and my team are, are got, got all sorts of um, things underway, whether it's around kind of workshops and webinars and podcasts and tools and knowledge briefings and working with some fantastic colleagues around that. And even within that, you have all these dilemmas um that my my team might not love me sharing all our dirty laundry but I think it's I think it's part of the learning right. so you find yourself in this space of well of course we want to help our members have access to good quality knowledge and of course we want to make stuff but of course we want to make sure that we're giving black and other minoritized people the platform we're amplifying their views and expertise but nor do we want to make them feel responsible for educating us and you know so you can again you find yourself thinking maybe even overthinking although uh, about the the sensitivity. You know, I've yeah. got friends and colleagues working in this space who who really highlight, I think, in our conversations, the both and. It is both absolutely vital, or we think it is at Research and Practice, to make sure that, for example, uh, black colleagues are absolutely being given the space to share their expertise. And it is essential that those black colleagues who have a multitude of other areas of wisdom are not treated as the black trainer you know and yeah, I just and, yeah. and that the nuance within which you proceed to try and do good work in this field we've been having all sorts of interesting conversations about you know how how can we ensure that the way in which we commission our authors and trainers is in and of itself anti-oppressive uh, and anti-discriminatory yeah. and and in some ways there's commonalities with how we commission people who are bringing lived experience of for example violence and abuse but in other ways, there's a real difference there because you absolutely don't want to be identifying an expert as only an expert in their own victimhood. Yeah. So these, yeah. these, you know, these nuances too, which I think they're the right things to be focusing on. Because they are. Having said, we just got to try and do better. I'm now uh, saying, and that's not enough on its own. The way in which you try has also got to be better. If that makes sense. Yeah, yes, it does. Yeah, I mean, some of it, I suppose, is just a new way of thinking, isn't it? And that's probably why, you know, there are lots of different rabbit holes to go down because a lot of what you've described there, and there's obviously infinitely more things for lots of different organisations, lots of different, uh, you know, social work or organisational leaders. A lot of it, there's no universal formula where we can say, right, OK, you want to dismantle racism? Here you go. Here's an off the shelf thing that will enable you to do that, you know, in your organisation. It doesn't really work like that. What it what it requires is kind of, you know, allyship, in my view, requires self-evaluation. But it also for teams and groups, it requires a kind of group evaluation. And for organisations, it requires an organisational evaluation. And that's going to look different for each of those different groups um and i think it's just about it being honest not being seen as 100 percent accurate but really it's just fueled by that positive intention to be anti-racist and what that might look like you know today might look different tomorrow or in six months time or in a year's time 
but you know everybody's on that kind of trajectory or that journey I suppose towards trying to become a better ally um, and not just an ally in terms of race you know obviously I'll bang on about race because that's my kind of remit now but an ally in in terms of all the you know respective ways that people might need to be supported whether that's to do with issues around sexuality or gender or you know whatever the issues are that you know from an intersectional point of view it's just about people realizing that well actually I need to do more than just fend for myself and people who look like me or people who are the same sexuality as me or whatever you know I need to think outside the box and look at people as human beings um you know it sounds really simplistic but I do think that there's a kind of deviation away from that with some of the narratives uh and perceptions that exist at the moment yeah and actually what you're making me think there is again back to this both and mindset it is both astonishingly simple and incredibly complex yeah, and both yeah. of those are true, true. yeah yeah are you finding that um the work that you've been doing that basra have been doing around yeah. anti-racism in social work mm. is it landing are people getting it bluntly <laughs> yeah yeah um so I think that it has been positive. It's definitely been positive. There's been a kind of insatiable appetite uh, from um, from individuals, from organisations across the country. Um, I would say that that's tended to um, be limited to mainly social work employers, local local authorities, you know, private agencies, a lot of universities, also uh, other avenues into social work that have all expressed an interest. And, you know, I've presented or we've done other collaborative work. So that's really, really positive. You talked about the Twitter stuff, which, you know, I have to get a handle on because it can take over a bit sometimes. Um, but it's a good vehicle, you know, for the anti-racism movement. Um, so, yeah, I talked about the limitations or the limited response. You know, that's really positive, all of that. But where I have found, uh, you know, that it's been a bit difficult, I suppose, is from a more national perspective and organisations that have a national reach, uh, a statutory reach uh, and influence. Um, there's been more of a kind of mixed response, I suppose, on that. Um, I mean, on a positive note, I've represented Baswa on the Workforce Race and Equality Standards, the RES uh, and the working group for that. I hope to be involved in the advisory group on that going forward. Uh, and that's really positive. You know, I hope that that can be mandatory and universal across all social work. Um, so, you know, that's something that I'll try and uh, aim for if possible. Uh, but with regards to social work regulation and such, which I've written about extensively and I've spoken about, you know, I'd really like to see um, anti-racism, anti-discrimination and anti-oppression in included explicitly within the standards. And I guess key action plans around you know, ways forward in terms of tackling the disproportionate representation of social workers in fitness to practice and all the stuff that's really well documented uh, and that's captured in my articles. You know, I'd like to see some movement on that. And I think many others would as well. One of the things that strikes me is that colleagues and organisations who are actively seeking to try and do better, be better and help others be better mm -hmm. are working against the backdrop uh, where perhaps the national political and policy discourse yes. um, uh, is even more challenging. How do you keep your cool? How do you keep yourself motivated, mm. healthy? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I suppose, um, I suppose I'm naturally confident, Des, uh, which I think my wife would uh, testify. And um, also, I'm very passionate and driven, um, you know, just I suppose generally. 
but more so now that the anti-racism movement has been reignited within social work. So what keeps me motivated, I suppose, is um, I don't really feel like I have to try at this stuff, if I'm honest. I feel like it comes sort of naturally because it's what I fundamentally believe in. So I don't feel I'm being fake in any way. I feel like I'm just being my true self. Um, and I'm just, I consider myself very fortunate and privileged in that I have uh, an opportunity to be able to do something about uh, what I feel passionately about. So because I have some of those parts of my personality anyway, that I'm just a bit, you know, a bit a bit of a one, I suppose, um, you know, <laughs> that uh, things have aligned for me in some ways, that I have a vehicle that I'm able to do something, at least within social work, um, you know, that will help me to kind of sleep better at night and think, well, I've done my bit. You know, it might be very slow, it might be very incremental, but, uh, you know, I'm kind of doing what I can and, you know, I can rest easy having done that. Uh, in terms of what keeps me motivated, um, uh, I suppose it's just doing the right thing fundamentally. I'm one of those people who is just, you know, I, I probably in many other aspects of my life have gone against the crowd or what the kind of consensus is just because I feel strongly and principally about, uh, you know, things that are important to me and how I view the world, compassion and equality and all those kind of cliche things. <laughs> Well, they're only cliches because they get said often enough because they're true. Yeah. And cliches get a bad rep. They <laughs> <laughs> do, you're right, yeah. I, um, I suppose I, I ask about that because, you know, as someone who doesn't directly experience racism, um, I'm conscious that I find it exhausting and upsetting to deal with the news and and to recognise that for, for friends and colleagues who, ex who directly experience racism themselves, you know, it's a thousand times harder than it is you know, uh, for those of us who don't. And in talking to friends and colleagues who work in this space, who are active in this space, particularly uh, black friends and colleagues, um, more so even than other minoritized people, there's something about when, when the professional is the personal, is the political, and is also the painful sometimes. Yeah. The, yeah. the emotional ask on change agents, sorry to use a sort of slightly wafty uh, term there, but emotional ask on friends and colleagues in that space I think is huge and and on one of the things that I haven't seen particularly clearly articulated in descriptions of white allyship is that that bit about hold support and nurture those people who are having the fight yeah that makes sense yeah that's really interesting that you say that as well I mean, just going back a step to what you said about the political dimension with a capital P, I didn't really touch on that uh, in my response, just to say that I am aware of that, of course. I mean, it's inescapable uh, at the moment with so many things that have been happening at that political level. Um, it doesn't demotivate me. It doesn't deter me. Uh, it can um, deflate me sometimes or, you know, kind of, I will have my bumps in the road with things where things get on top of me in whatever way and I tend to go running or cycling or you know keep myself active uh, physically to kind of you know sort of deal with that I find that helps um, but it doesn't deter me or anything because I just see that as competition if I'm honest and I'm quite a competitive kind of guy and uh, you know a lot of the areas where I feel there's resistance um, I just see that as competition and uh, you know, I just think it, it just makes me want to step things up, really, and just think of other new innovative ways to try and combat racism. One of the things that um, I often hear, and I, you might want to correct me on this, I, we hear a lot about things like um, sharing power. 
in terms of things like community development literature, I'm quite persuaded by the argument that um, giving power or sharing power yeah. um, or certainly giving up power is less useful than the notion of unleashing power because the power is there it's just that we've been hogging it it's not that i've yeah. got it and i'll gift wrap it and give some of it to you it's that you've got your own and i just need to stop taking up the oxygen yeah 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 it is i think i um take a kind of multifaceted view on privilege or white privilege um in that there's an element there's definitely an element of what you've said about unleashing power i think in in some scenarios it is important for allies to unleash their power but i also appreciate for those people who perhaps are self-conscious about their power the thought of unleashing it would kind of make them feel condescending as you say or or kind of you know feel ambivalent about doing that but there's just, i just think different scenarios require different things from allies and so that's why it's important allies are educated in terms of the power that they hold, how that could be used in different situations, what that power actually is. You know, sometimes it's verbal, sometimes it might be, I don't know, social capital, you know, uh, various different things. A, a way I like to view privilege is the concept of it almost being um, sort of power, power and privilege. I like to view them as a kind of currency almost. And this idea of spending privilege and spending power. So, you know, for allies to think, you know, okay, I can't change the world, but in my particular, you know, remit or area, this is the kind of power that I have. These are the sort of things that I could do in order to level the playing field. This is in terms of language, the kind of conversations I could have with myself and with others. And people start to begin to outline almost within their uh you know within their lifestyle areas that they can begin to make some of those incremental changes and i think that's how we overcome some of this personally and professionally but it's getting people to view it like that you know um in, in the first place yeah the idea of how to spend it and what what do you get yeah what do you what do you get for the yeah, results what, and what do you get yeah and what do you get back out of it because some of it is about the immediacy as well mm. Um, the immediacy of racism to white allies and the immediacy of allyship to potential allies. Do you see what I mean? And drawing those things together so people think, oh, yeah, I thought actually there wasn't any racism. I thought the civil report was right. But now I'm looking at through these lenses, I'm realising that, oh, yeah, that's racism and this is racism and this is what I can do about it. Do you see what I mean? Yes. Yeah, I do. Uh, sorry, I, I lost my poker face for a second at the idea that anyone would have read the Sill Report and thought it was valid, but um, you're quite right, of course. Diversity of views and yeah, all that. people exist. <laughs> I'm on a journey, Wayne. I, I haven't quite. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the other thing that uh, occurs to me about uh, power, power and privilege is recognising where they're baked in. I think often as individuals, we we can feel that we don't have much power. You know, it's very easy for me to focus on the sexism I experience and not to notice the white privilege I also concurrently experience yeah. uh, or the privilege that comes through being able-bodied, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and and it can be quite painful, I think, to, to recognise that when you are also re experiencing discrimination or oppression or, or harm for another aspect of your identity. So there's a kind of... Uh, this sounds silly almost but almost like a, a loss a slight a slight sense of loss that 
I, you know, you might have to, in acknowledging your privilege through one aspect of your identity, you're being asked to somehow ignore or um, or, or parcel away. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, I it's not. That. That's the point of intersectionality: is that yeah. you you are both, and the, the our, our identities are more like cut gems, yeah. many, many, many facets, and they're fractal. Exactly. And there's a kind of process of giving and taking, I think. So, you know, giving compassion, empathy, understanding to people who, you know, ha who identify differently to you, but for whatever reason. But then at the same time, you being willing, unable to receive some understanding around that in terms of how it relates to you as well and getting people to understand it. it's a two way process. Whereas at the moment, I think it becomes quite a one way process around some of these issues, hence why we have discrimination, because people don't have that kind of cooperative, uh, you know, kind of take on the world approach to, to life. It's more kind of you know, these immigrants or these black people or, you know, uh, people are labelled and, as you say, parceled away, when actually, in order for us to kind of be more harmonious, there needs to be an understanding of this kind of interdependence, mm. you know, would, would be my take on things. Uh, and so, like I say, allyship isn't just about racial allyship, you know, it, it takes many different forms. I bang on about the racial dimension because of my role, but actually it's just about people understanding that concept of allyship more broadly. Yeah. And one of the conundrums, and I don't know if this plays out um, for you or in Basra, but one of the, as an evidence-informed practice organisation, we, we quite like evidence. It's our major yeah. sort of, you know, change mechanism by which we try to help people in their practice and their leadership. And and of course, the, the evidence base itself, particularly I'm thinking about the traditional research evidence base, um, has itself um, some baked in blind spots, biases, uh, Anglo-centric yes. perspectives. Um, I was really struck by how, I think it was HE, Advanced HE's research a couple of years ago, 0.06% of professors in the UK identifying as black and less than five institutions, academic institutions, heads identify as black, Asian or uh, of minority, so-called minority ethnic background. So there's a sort of, um, there's a, you talked about the, the white gaze, arguably there's a white gaze within the research evidence base. There's oh, yeah. Then, and, and I think that's not a not only um, the case in terms of black voices and expertise, we know, for example, that working class academics are fighting hard to have better representation, better respect in their work. User centred and user led research often, uh, you know, people, you know, strong, passionate advocates, people like Peter Beresford and others would say that it's it's there's a hierarchy. It's not respected in the same way. So the evidence itself is not being made by a truly diverse group of people. Yeah. Uh, and then the way in which evidence is used can often compound that. I was really struck recently, uh, there was a, re a report that came out, um, I think it might have been for the Coalition Around Race Equalities, or certainly they were involved, which looked at how uh, research funding and, and grant funding and things mm -hmm. um, much more likely to be awarded to white researchers or able-bodied researchers, male researchers. Yeah. <laughs> and yet we use awarding of grant funding as one of the measures by which we decide whether you're a good institution. So you get this kind of yeah. perpetuation yeah. Of provision power within the evidence base yeah. and yet people like to pretend that um, evidence is neutral and objective but of course it's not because it exists in a context. Yeah for sure and you know those uh, in power and control they determine the evidence so thinking of the Sewell report for example if you think about the processes 
uh, and the personnel involved in you know putting the panel together and then the outcome of the the report and all the rest of it thinking along uh, the lines that you've just described you know it doesn't come as a surprise then that you know the report presents in the way that it does um so i do think that one of the real one of the benefits of, of black lives matter blm is that it's really uh, put a spotlight on everything in terms of policy practice and education uh, across lots of different professions but for me looking at it in terms of social work it's just really interesting like how you just described there with education you know um there's a, a monopoly almost you know of whiteness that permeates through uh, social work education but education more broadly and uh, I was watching um, a YouTube uh, clip the other day with uh, Kahindi Andrews who was involved in a debate at Oxford Union I think it was from a few years ago and it was fascinating about uh, education obviously he's a professor of black studies so he knows his stuff uh, historically uh, but also contemporarily as well um, but uh, he was just talking about the education system as a whole in this country and how it basically perpetuates white supremacy. It's a machine that just, you know, uh, continues to redefine uh, white supremacy in both a covert and an overt way. Uh, and I think that we can relate that to social work when we look at the number of professors, as you were saying, uh, the hierarchies of some of these institutions. Um, and the content of a lot of the courses uh, and the fact that, as I pointed out in my presentation, you know, just very basic terminology around racism and around discrimination and so on isn't included in our regulatory frameworks um, is only fleetingly mentioned uh, in social work courses, uh, in some courses, certainly. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just a really interesting point and uh, it just identifies and highlights we need to do more. Yeah, absolutely right. And uh, and I would add to that as well. I think I would observe um, similarly problematic issues around both the evidence being generated and how it gets implemented in relation to socioeconomic status, poverty uh, and inequality on that front too. I, yeah. um, I quite often find myself uh, reading research or indeed, you know, tools that have been made based on research, which have real blind spots in them. There's a, there's quite a well-known neglect assessment tool that I occasionally pick on when I'm doing talks around this, yeah. which has, you know, it's, it's a pretty well research based tool. It's one of the better ones in circulation. It's very popular and it includes sort of indicators of good non-neglectful parenting, which includes um, things like the child's hair is clean and brushed daily. Well, the two kids I love most in the world have huge, glorious froes. Right. And I don't, they do want to, you know, um, there's, evidence, there's things like, you know, there's a kid, you know, the family eat around a table. Well, not if you put me in a bed sit. Mm. You know, there are age appropriate yeah. toys available. Well, not if I've just fled to a refuge with nothing but my handbag. It was a real sense of how, um, not to critique the tool itself, but tools based on research which are inherently Anglo-centric and, and kind yeah. of middle class uh, mm. in, the, in their assumption, as some would criticise, they need to be in the hands of really well supervised, thoughtful, values driven, anti-oppressive practitioners. Yeah. You, you need good people with good kit. Sure. One or either on their own seems to me to leave space for blind spots and biases. Completely. And I think uh, just hearing you speak there, what what came to mind for me was around the service user uh, involvement and perspective as well in the, in the development of those tools and curriculums and so on. 
that if, if we've not got that input first and foremost, then it's limited to just a practitioner or a research perspective, which I think is quite blinkered. But then also if there's not a kind of, you know, intersectional approach in terms of the makeup of those professionals and the service user involvement, as you say, it leads to these blind spots. Yeah. You look at the end result, you try and apply it, you know, on a home visit as a frontline practitioner, and you're thinking, well, hang on, this is, you know, uh, an Asian family. They don't traditionally uh, want to sit around the table, or, or they might want to sit on the floor, perhaps, and and you know, um, and uh, you know, they might want to eat in a in a way that's non-traditional to English people, but that hasn't been considered uh, in this assessment tool um, or in this particular uh, subject that I'm studying. And I just think th those are indicators of where social work really needs to step up. Um, and some um, education or higher education institutes I've been in contact with are looking at those things, you know, are considering those things. Others just aren't. And as I say, from a national point of view, I'm looking to some of those organisations and groups that have national influence. And I'm thinking, well, you know, where are you on this? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess it, it made me think when you were talking about decolonising curriculum, that that's where my mind went to about some of the research and research-based tools I've seen that perhaps haven't had that interrogative lens applied yeah. to them and that critical thinking. Yeah. And uh, and I think you're absolutely right around the, the need to have multiple voices. At Research and Practice, we talk about evidence-informed practice, which is a bit different to evidence-based practice in the purer sense. We by evidence-informed practice, we mean triangulating robust, relevant, legit research and data, but alongside professional wisdom, sometimes called tacit knowledge, and thirdly, crucially, expertise from those with lived experience. And it's um, it's like a platting of bread. Yeah. Um, and uh, I guess that for for me that um that broadens out the the notion of evidence-informed practice from a sort of purist what works agenda, mm -hmm. which you know it is important, and I. Contrary to popular opinion, I, I do think RCTs have a place um, and and I, you know, I, I think it is important that we build up that kind of evidence base as well as also understanding what matters. Not all mm. of what matters can be um, understood through a purist what works lens. Mm. Some of the questions that I think um, social work, other professions, uh, national organisations need to answer are what if and what matters kind of questions. And I don't believe you can answer them without practitioner and child, family, adult uh, perspectives. Um, and not everything that we need to answer is a lab laboratory. Does this intervention work better than that intervention? Um, conundrum we're facing. And and so there's something as well about within the evidence sector being humble enough to take a horses for courses approach. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that all sounds very logical and rational to me. Um, you know, I don't consider myself to be an academic or, a, you know, researcher. You know, I still probably foolishly consider myself as a practitioner, even though I've been out of frontline practice for over three and a half years. Um, but that's been my bread and butter really for many years and you know probably more of an activist now realistically but um, my view of academia and research around um, anti-racism is that yes it is important for sure but it isn't something that I think uh, we should allow um, 
the serious issues, the serious action that's needed to just be kicked into the long grass. And I think there's a danger of that sometimes that it's, there's a kind of we can't do anything until we've got the evidence approach, I think, with some organisations. And I think, well, no, actually, it's clear uh, from various other um, sources what the issues are, you know, credible sources, reputable sources. Let's take some action based on that and undertake the research and the evidence that, you know, that might need to be, uh, you know, gathered in the meantime alongside that. Uh, but it seems to be a one or the other uh, kind of approach. And I do think that for some, it is just a tactic just to kick these issues into the long grass. Quite often, any progress that's being made isn't visible or transparent uh, to everyone when I feel it should be. Um, you know, it's not about pointing the finger. It's really about being reassured that, you know, anti-racism is being taken seriously in whatever capacity. So, um, you know, going back to what you were saying about academia and research, I think it's important. Um, like I say, uh, I can totally uh, empathise and understand where you're coming from in terms of the logic and, and rationale that you apply uh, research and practice. But more broadly than that, in social work, I just think there needs to be less suppression of action or excuses for not taking action, basically. Um, and uh, yeah, that's something that I'm really sort of wanting to promote best I can, that, uh, you know, it's not about doing the right thing all of the time. It's about trying to take the right action, really, as much as you can, a more realistic approach. Um, and I love that you use the word uh, activist. I absolutely would, would identify you as an activist if someone Thank was you. to ask me. Um, and one of the things that strikes me is uh, I can certainly uh, remember in my career, um, being advised that it wasn't my job to be an activist because I was now a professional um, okay. uh, and I think particularly in some bigger institutions you know local government perhaps in in the NHS uh, policing um, I wonder if professionals are sometimes given the impression that they have to compartmentalize you come to work to be you know yeah. stoic and professional and polite and if you do your activism on the weekends, you know, don't get caught. Yeah, yeah. That's Whereas I would increasingly, I think, actually, in the current climate, I would see an integration of your professional, your personal, your political identities as being essential for coherence and congruence. But I mean, I'm interested in your views on that. Yeah, I, again, I totally agree with that. And I think that it's difficult for probably most people to be able to... Uh, to be authentic in all, you know, in all of those different uh, hats that they might wear. My situation is probably a little bit unique because of my role at Basware, that it allows me to um, merge to some degree personal and professional values and ethics around uh, anti-racism. Much of this role that I did when, uh, you know, unofficially, um, sort of prior to February, definitely was a merging of the personal and professional and I look back on some of the things that I was involved in some of the articles that I wrote and things I think oh blimey I was in a you know a kind of you know um, an angry place or a you know an emotive place at that time and I don't apologize for any of it but it's just interesting to um to chart my progress I guess uh, with some of the things that I've done uh, but yeah the role certainly allows me to merge those things and I think for other people, um, for other social workers, there is definitely a, a large element of compliance with what their employers expect, what uh, you know um, the regulator will expect from them in terms of conduct, etc. Um, but I think there always has to be a place for activism, 
and you know i've written an article previously uh, prior to all this anti-racism stuff actually on why um social work activism isn't dead that i'd encourage people to have a look at because i still think it rings true now and uh, certainly when i came into the profession um, although there wasn't a strong activist movement there were many practitioners that i worked alongside who were sort of seniors at that time who spoke fondly about you know bygone eras about you know kind of the bedrock of social work social justice and all those things and it was all that kind of narrative and camaraderie that i had with them that made me think well yeah this is a, an area that i do want to qualify in i do want to become a social worker you know i do want to be able to uh, champion social justice um but then almost ironically what's happened is since then it feels as though some of the social justice element has slid off the priority list uh, a little bit for various reasons, not just internal to social work, you know, external in society as well. But because of that, it's kind of almost eroded the identity of um, social work and social workers. And I just think we need to get back to our true roots, really. <laughs> and that's a great note to end on. Um, we will make sure that uh, all the different links, all the fantastic resources that you and your colleagues at Basra produced will include these in the, what I think are called show notes. Oh. There's fancy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we'll make sure uh, that people have a chance to access the materials. I just want to thank you for all the work you do, all the work that Baswa does. Um, uh, I know that I learn uh, a lot from what you're doing and I've learned lots in this conversation. Um, and I, I think also, uh, back to our point about fragility and vulnerability, what you do very well, Wayne, is create a space in which it feels safe enough to say, oh God, I'm not getting this right. I'm really scared. I'm going to get it wrong. Oh, you know, and um, and I think that that is a really powerful mechanism for change. There is a space for furious, angry, mm. combative um, resistance. Mm. I believe that very, very, very strongly. And I also recognise that it can be equally powerful sometimes to, to in the very artful way that, that you do, to just create space for those of us who have privilege, particularly associated to being white, to, to feel OK to learn. And that's oh, well, not that's easy really, to pull off. Thanks, that's really kind of you to say. Um, I really appreciate that. And that's the aim, you know, it's not about pointing fingers, although some people may feel I'm constantly pointing fingers at them. Um, but, uh, you know, I really want to work collaboratively. That's the thing. You know, I, it's not about uh, isolating people or, you know, blame culture, which I think there's already too much of within social work. This is really about collaboration and trying to, you know, bring people on that anti-racism journey, really. Yeah, well, I am, um, as I say, I think back to both and it is both essential that we have some folks on the terraces screaming that the game is rigged and yeah. really, really important to have people on the pitch. And I think that you you do both those and everything in between with that, uh, with real sophistication and warmth. Thanks, so thank you. For listening to this research in practice podcast we hope you've enjoyed it why not share with your colleagues and let us know your thoughts on twitter tweet us at research ip